Well, good morning again. I'm Adrian Warnock, uh, those of you that don't know me. I am one of the leaders at Jubilee, and I'll be here some weeks and not others. Uh, so that's why sometimes people say, Where, where's he gone? In fact, at an infield site, my wife tends to be there most weeks. And um, I'd been coming here so much recently that uh, she actually had someone come to her and say, has, has Adrian left the church? It's like, no, no, he's down at Wood Green. But it's wonderful to be a family on three sites now, isn't it? Exciting. So if you've got friends down in Ilford, you can send them there. If you've got friends in Enfield, you can send them here. And really, from this site, we can get here from all over London quite easily, can't we? Which is a wonderful thing. But you know, today I want to talk to us about fatherhood. And you know, it's a very important thing. It's recognised today that there is actually a crisis of fatherhood. A crisis of fatherhood in our society, and in many societies, especially in the West. Did you know that in the UK today, one in four families of children only have one parent living at home with them? One in four. That's a lot. And actually, 90% of the time, that is the mother. And it's funny because, I don't know, it's not so much like that now, but growing up, I think... People used to sort of stigmatise the single mums, didn't they? And I think that's gone now, perhaps because it's so common. But it was always a sad thing to me, because what you're doing there is you're stigmatising the parent who chose to stay. It's not the single mum that should be stigmatised, but the absent dad. And unfortunately, that story is too, too often. Many men desert their children. They leave them. They run off. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is that Actually, as we heard from those videos, fatherhood is the greatest delight of a man's life. But it does require him to be a man and not a little boy. And unfortunately, it's the greatest challenge of your life as well as a man. And I think as a man, you have a choice. You either embrace that challenge, knowing that you're going to fail often. And trust me, there are no perfect fathers, and you're certainly not looking at one here. And it's the greatest challenge of your life. It will be painful at times. It will be difficult at times. It will cause you pain at times. And one of the worst sorts of pain is the pain that you feel when you realise you've messed up as a dad. You've done something wrong. You've said something wrong. You've upset someone. Or you've, you know, you've been angry when you shouldn't have been angry. Or perhaps you haven't been angry when you should have. You, know, you can't get it right sometimes as a father. You, you, know, you don't know whether to be tough and to show tough love or, or to be kind and compassionate. And that challenge is not an easy one. It takes great wisdom, it great, takes great commitment, and it's the greatest thing you can ever do with your life as a man. But many men don't want to be men. They want to run off. They want to be little boys. They want to play on their Xboxes until they're 50. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Xboxes. But there is if it consumes your emotional energy and consumes your passion and consumes your drive and leaves you as a sort of hollow shell of a man who's not willing to stand up and be counted and to make a difference in society. Because men can make a real difference in the lives of their children. As much as women are important and mothers are important, there's a sense in which children need to learn the world of women, but they need to learn the world of men too. You know? Most women are not going to get on the floor and wrestle with their children. I mean, they can. I'm not saying they can't, but it's not something they're comfortable doing. And you need that, trust me. I remember wrestling with my dad. And there comes a point where you can beat him. 
I'm not at that point with my children yet. I have five children. And uh, the oldest girl, of course, we don't wrestle anymore. You don't wrestle with a 17-year-old girl. They're way too cool for that. Not too cool for playing Nintendo, so the other day. But anyway, that's another story. Um, we were all too cool for watching things like Toy Story, but anyway. Um, you wrestle with your children, and my 15-year-old, he's pretty tough. He's got muscles where I've just got flabber. But I can still beat him. I don't know how much longer. I have five children, so I have um, some experience of being a father, and I know how challenging it can be as they grow And I know also how easy it is to criticise fathers. And I think we all are guilty of that. Sometimes it's too easy to criticise your father, especially because you compare him to a sort of idealised image you have of what a father should be like. And perhaps he was a good father, really. Maybe not the best. Certainly not perfect. But he's the only father you'll ever have. And I think sometimes we find it difficult to relate to God because of problems that we feel we've had with our Father. But the same can happen in reverse, actually. And that's this. Sometimes you can find it difficult to relate to your Father because you compare him with God. And let me just say right now to all fathers in the room, you can't be God to your children and to the mothers too. And to the children, and to those of us that are adults, thinking about our background, thinking about our childhood, judging them. And it's very easy, let me say one thing, until you've had children of your own, it's very easy to think you're going to be the best parent ever. I know I used to feel like that. I was like, I've got this. I can do this. But trust me, as the months and the years go by, that initial smugness that you could see in some of those early fathers, new fathers on that video. That initial, we got this, this is great, this is wonderful, I love my kid. That can begin to fade over time. (laughs) When you get asked to pick them up at midnight for the third Saturday in a row, you're like, can't it be half eleven? Just just half eleven, can't you just leave the party? 30 minutes early, and that 30 minutes, you you just die for that 30 minutes extra in bed, but hey, there you go. So if you see me yawning on a Sunday morning, you understand why. But actually, it's a hard act to follow, fathers, if we're trying to be compared, or indeed if we're comparing ourselves with our Father God. Because of our Father God, he is the perfect Father, and we'll see a little bit more about that as we go through Uh, this passage. But the fact is this, we all are his children. It's a wonderful thing. And Jesus taught us to pray, our Father. It's a very levelling thing. Uh, You know, we're all children of somebody, but we're all children of God, as believers especially. But even people out there, God is the Father of all of us in the sense that he made us all. But he's the father of, of, of Christians, especially in the sense that he saved us and he caused us to be born again. So I want to talk about the privilege of being God's child. The privilege of being God's child or the privilege of having God as your father. The first thing here we see in this passage uh, is it's very simple. It says uh, in, in verse 14 of chapter 8 of Romans, it says that uh, 
We are all led by the Spirit of God. And if we're led by the Spirit of God, it says, then we are children or sons of God. So, and sorry, ladies, you have to cope sometimes with the idea of being a son of God, just like we have to cope with the idea of being the bride of Christ as the church, all right? So, it's just the way it is. <laughs> so we are sons of God. And the reason it uses that word, of course, is particularly in their culture, only sons would inherit. So back then, the ladies wouldn't have wanted to be called daughters of God in that sense, because they wouldn't have inherited. They would have been seen as second class. But you're not second class. We're all first class in God. And it says that if you're led by the Spirit of God, then you're a son of God. So those two things, you can think of it either way. If you want to know who the children of God are, ask yourself who of them are being led by the Spirit. And if you want to uh, know if you're a child of God, ask yourself, am I being led by God, led by the Spirit? And if you know you're a child of God, then you can come to God and say, lead me, I'm your child. So it's a wonderful thing there. And how does the Spirit lead us? Well, first of all, he leads us to Jesus. The very first thing that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer happens before they're even a believer. They begin, he begins to draw your heart towards God. He begins to put a strange desire in your heart to get up early on a Sunday morning and come to church. What a crazy thing to do. You could be sleeping in. You know, you could be watching daytime TV or whatever on a Sunday morning. and All those things you could be doing. Uh, and yet somehow a desire gets stirred in you to come to church or to read the Bible or to go to an Alpha course or, 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 or just to talk to somebody about Jesus and say, well, who is this Jesus? Do, do I believe in him? Don't I believe in him? Is he the, really the son of God? Did he really die 2,000 years ago? And did he come back to life? Did he, did he conquer death? Is he now ruling on high in heaven? And is he going to come again and judge us? Is he? And you ask those questions. And you think maybe it's you that's seeking God. But actually, even in that moment, he is seeking you. And his spirit is stirring in your heart. He's working in you, drawing you to him. But also, he's convicting you of sin. He's making you realise that this big stuff person that you know, we tend to think we are when we're young, you know, especially when you get to about, I don't know, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20, all that whole year, that whole period anyway in my life, maybe it was just me, I was like, I can take on the world. I made it through my A-levels somehow. You know, I got to university. I didn't get thrown out of university. I qualified. I have a career now. I can do this. And as you get older, you realise you can't. But the Spirit works in you to humble you, to convict you of your own sin, to make you realise that pride isn't going to get you anywhere, that God is God and you are not. He draws you to read this book, to understand this book, to, to as you say, find out about God and then to make that commitment. And he causes you to be born again. And let me tell you, all of that work of the Holy Spirit, you may not realise it's the Holy Spirit that's doing it. The Bible says that you know, the Holy Spirit's like wind. You can't really see wind, but you can see what wind does. Yeah? You look down the street and you see the trees billowing in the wind. And you don't say, there's the wind. But you say, that's what the wind is doing. So as a believer, if you now love Jesus... If you now want to follow him, if you now have made that choice, if, you've, if you can sing that song, if you like, that uh, I really love, that goes, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. 
the world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. And you may say to yourself, I have decided. But what the Spirit says is actually, I caused that in you. I birthed that in you. And you may not know the Spirit, but he's led you. And every time you open this book, which he inspired, and something speaks to you from it, he's leading you that way. That's the primary way he leads you, actually. Every time a a believer tells you something, and it grips your heart, or you hear the preaching of the word, and your life, you go, oh, wow, I've got to do this. Or you're in worship, and your heart begins to beat inside your chest, and you just start to love him more and more. All those things, it's the Spirit leading you. But on top of all that, as if that wasn't enough, we can know the Spirit. And that's something additional, if you like. It's like almost the icing on top of the cake, but it's what God wants. It's the beginning of of reversing what happened at the fall. What happened at the fall is that man and God were separated. And that separation was absolute. Suddenly, man was on his own. He didn't know God. God wasn't communing with him. He wasn't walking with him anymore. He wasn't fathering him anymore. He was on his own. And we are separated from God because of our sin. But because of what Jesus did, that separation has been broken. And so we're back with God, but sometimes we don't really know it. And what the Spirit wants to do is to restore that relationship with God. He wants you to know God through him. He wants to lead you in that way and he wants you to be aware of it and I believe that that process of becoming aware of the work of the spirit in your life of knowing the spirit as a person of the Holy Spirit becoming like your friend who's with you all the time that process you could call it receiving the spirit or being filled with the spirit or even baptism with the, with the Holy Spirit and we believe in that here and, and you know I feel that there's some people here this morning You've never had that encounter with the Spirit. I'm emphasising this far more than I was planning to in my notes because I believe that God is here and wants to pour out his Spirit on us this morning. Amen? He wants to father us. He wants to lead us. Proverbs 3 tells us this, and it's a beautiful passage. I love this passage. In fact, you probably won't be able to see this, of course, but inside my ring, my wedding ring, is inscribed, if it hasn't rubbed out by now after all these years, Proverbs 3 Five to six. And uh, anyone who's known me a long time, like someone over the front there, will have heard me quote this verse, okay? And it's a passage on which you can build your life. It says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Okay, so God is calling you to trust him. That's what faith is, really. Or at least it's the root of faith. To trust him with all your heart. Sometimes we struggle to trust our fathers because they let us down. God will never let you down. You can trust him with all your heart. So that's, if you like, the first condition of the promise that we're coming to. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And if I could talk to my 18-year-old self, I'd say, don't be so cocky. That's basically what that passage means, what that verse means. Don't be cocky. Don't think that this has got it sorted. Don't lean on your own understanding. Realise that we're all pretty stupid, actually. I love what, what, what our pastor, Toppy, says, is that his most common prayer is this, God, give me wisdom. He says he prays it on the way to almost every meeting he goes to. God, give me wisdom. Teach me what to say and how to say it in this meeting, that I might reflect your wisdom. And he says, 
He says he thinks that God makes him look better than he really is as a result. Amen. That's a good way to live. Give me wisdom. Give me your wisdom. Lead me. Don't depend on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. The passage continues. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And that's just really about prayer. It's about going to God and saying, well, God, I'm about to take a step. You know? It's funny. Sometimes people are, I don't know, without a job, and, and they want God to give them a job. It's like, okay, fine. Well, let's take some steps. Let's maybe walk down to the job center or click online to a website, find some jobs, fill out the application form. But all the way, taking steps, active steps, but acknowledging him as you do it and going, God, I'm doing this because it seems like the right thing. Show me if it's not. Close the door if it's wrong. Open the door if it's right. And I can tell you, my own experiences of God slamming doors in my face and me going, huh? But actually, him doing that to open another door, which was much better for me that I didn't realize at the time. So that's what it means to acknowledge him in your steps. They're not just going, well, I'm going to do this. It's a bit like it says in the Bible, doesn't it? That Don't say, I'm going to go to this city. I'm going to do this. I'm going to carry out business. I'm going to make money. And then say instead, if God's willing, I'm going to do that. And I think that's so important to, to be humble. Some people come to God like he's a slot machine. It's like if I put in some worship, maybe a bit of reading the Bible too, maybe a bit of prayer, and, you know, if I stop doing that sin that I know I shouldn't be doing, then if I press a few buttons, out will come the thing that I choose. God's not a slot machine, because sometimes the thing that comes out isn't what you asked for. It's better. Amen? And sometimes it doesn't come out straight away. I'm going to embarrass one of my sons over there. I'm not going to tell you which one. But he was so upset the other day because he'd ordered something on Amazon and it hadn't come the next day. I said, look, before Amazon, things took like 21 days to come. Remember that? Mail order stuff. And you'd order it and 21 days later it would come. And he's like, it it didn't come the next day. You know, it's like we get so annoyed about things when they don't happen instantly. I'm going to get into trouble for that afterwards. (laughs) He leads us. And then the passage says this. If you do those three things, if you trust him with all your heart, if you lean not on your own understanding, if in all your ways you acknowledge him, he will direct your paths or he will make your paths straight. And so, brothers and sisters, before we start talking about prophecy and, and all that, we get to this point and we say, okay, I'm trusting you to direct me. And prophecy is one of the ways he directs you, but it's not the only way. It's not even the primary way, actually. Because all too often we can think we've heard God when all we've really done is heard what we want. And so what we have to do is we have to take that lightly in a way. We weigh it, we compare it to scripture, we submit it to the wisdom of our friends, of our pastors. And actually we allow sometimes circumstances to guide us too. So, I don't know. Let's say, for example, you think you've heard from God that he wants you to be a preacher. And you're sitting there in your pew, in the chair, saying, well, okay, Ola, when are you going to ask me to be a preacher then, please? I want to preach, and you haven't asked me yet. Whereas actually, what you should be doing is testing that. How do you do that? Well, have you actually started going to small group yet? No. Okay, go to small group. And don't go there thinking that you're going to lead it the first week you get there. Go there and just be an active participant. And if you really are called to preach, well, you better start reading the Bible at home. 
and studying the Bible and reading all kinds of Christian books, some of which are very complicated. But you, know, you don't have to start with the complicated ones. You start with the simple ones. You read the Bible, you read Christian books, and then you know, in the small group you try and just answer one of the questions instead of sitting there waiting, saying, well, they haven't asked me. Well, they have actually. They just asked a question. Now is your opportunity to share what it is God is putting in your heart, you know, hopefully that's relevant to what the question they've just asked. And then, here's the thing. People will begin to be blessed by that. You know, people go, oh, you know, when, when John talks in small group, it really makes sense. I get blessed by it, I get helped by it. And gradually, step by step, there's that in all your ways acknowledging thing, step by step, God will guide you into what it is he has for you to do. And eventually, perhaps, you know, you'll be asked to lead the Bible study one week. But if you're asked to lead the Bible study one week, and you find it's the most stressful thing you've ever done, you hate it, and everyone falls asleep, and, you've, and you get to the end of that, and you go, oh my goodness, maybe you were not supposed to be a preacher. You've tested it, you've weighed it. Circumstances in that situation have spoken to you. God has led you through circumstances, and he does that often, actually. It's not just through the prophetic moment, you know? Sorry, I offer you that. Just like a wise father knows you have to grab teaching opportunities at the weirdest of moments, like when you're driving them home late at night, or whatever it is, so God does that with us. So he gently leads and directs us. That's my first sub-point of my first point. So we'll be here for a while yet. No, we won't be too long. Secondly, um, we do not need to be terrified of him. This is one of the privileges of being God's child. Firstly, that he leads and directs us. Second, that we do not have to be terrified of him as though he were a slave master. Uh, And we see that here. He did not give us, it says, a spirit uh, of slavery to fall back into fear. Many of us fear God. And it's a funny thing, because in the Bible, there are two types of fear. There's terror, if you like, and then there's respect. And God doesn't want you to be terrified of him, but he does want you to respect him. And as fathers, sometimes we get that confused as well. We can terrorize our children instead of instilling respect. And he wants us to respect him, yes, but he doesn't give us a spirit of slavery. And some of us are like that. We, we think God is demanding more and more of us. We think that, you know, if we ever sit down and watch a movie, goodness sake, you know, that God will be angry with us. Well, I mean, there are some kinds of movies you shouldn't watch, but you know what I'm saying. The principle is this. He loves you, he wants the good for you, and he doesn't want you to be terrified of him because he hasn't given you a spirit of slavery, but he's made you his child. Many, many people who go to churches actually live under the spirit of slavery. Maybe there's one or two of you here this morning, and God wants to set you free from that. You see, a father will look at his child and say to them, I will always love you. I will love you so much that even if you get thrown into prison, I will come and visit you, even if nobody else wants to. And that's how God sees you. He loves you even when you make mistakes, even when you sin, even when you fail him. And you do not have to earn his love. It's a wonderful thing. We're not slaves of God, we're sons of God. And then we see in the next verse, it says that um, you receive the spirit of adoption as sons. He's adopted us. It's a beautiful thing. You know, one of the things about 
fathers is you don't get to choose your father. And as a father, you don't get to choose your child either. And I've seen how they, they come out different, you know. Even when you've got the same people involved, they all come out different, all five of them, very different. And here's the beautiful thing. When you have adopted parents, they choose to adopt you. And God has chosen to adopt you. He's chosen to make you his son. That's gloriously liberating. He looked at you where everyone else perhaps rejected you, where maybe your own family rejected you, where perhaps you don't have reliable friends, where you, know, you can't get a good job, where no one seems to understand you, and all that. And he says, I'll have him. I'll have her. Wonderful. Wonderful, don't you think? Can I get an amen? amen. He chose us to be adopted as his sons. What a beautiful thing. And because of that, as we saw earlier in Galatians 4 as well, we can have an intimate relationship with him. Because of the work of the Spirit in us, notice how involved the Spirit is in here. You know, we're led by the Spirit. We're adopted through the Spirit of adoption. But also, by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. And he wants you to know him. He wants to pour out his love on you. He wants you to be accepted, to know forgiveness. And as it puts it here, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if you're someone who, who worries, am I a Christian really? I mean, I'm not as holy as John here. I thought you might have laughed then. <laughs> they obviously really do think you're holy, John. <laughs> but, you know, he's a Christian, obviously. But am I a Christian? Well, actually, the Spirit will bear witness with your spirit, saying, yes, you are. You are my son, and I love you. Just like uh, when, when uh, Jesus was being baptized, the heavens opened. A voice came from heaven and said, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And the Spirit came in and, and, and fell on him and it appeared and it rested on him like a dove. And actually, it wasn't just for the voices around. It was God's stamp of approval on Jesus. And he wants to put that stamp of approval on you and say, you are my son, you are my daughter. I will never let you go. And for you to feel that in your heart and for you to know that with your knower, as they say. The love of God poured out into our hearts by his spirit. But what else does he do? He provides for us as heirs. We are fellow heirs with Christ, it says here. Just as a father would provide for his children, God provides for us. We can come to him and we can ask him for anything we need. Now, he won't necessarily give it to exactly as, I said, as we were saying earlier, but he will meet your needs. The Bible promises us that, that he will meet what you actually need. You will ask him for what you think you need. He will give you what you actually need. He provides for us. And then it says he is with us in the good times and in the bad. It says that we must suffer with him in order to be glorified with him. You see, Jesus suffered for us. The, the passage we also read at the beginning, or we had read to us in Galatians 4, said that God sent his son. Imagine that as a father, sending his only son, actually, to die for you and I, to carry our sin in order that we could be redeemed, in order that we too could be children of God. He was willing to, to put his son through that for you and for me. And we suffer with him sometimes. 
You know, we, we, we do. Someone mocks us because we're a Christian or whatever. But we will also be glorified with him. He's with us in the good times and the bad. And he will never leave us. And he is preparing for us a glorious future. And so, in conclusion, my third point really is simply this. The privilege of fathering. And the wonderful thing is, as we've read these verses, we probably forgot for a moment we were talking about Father's Day. We were describing the perfect father, God. But guess what, fathers? If you want a guide for how to father, this is it. Now, the target is here. You're not going to hit it. But let's try and get as close as we can. So what does it mean? Well, what does fathering look like? Fathering is this, to gently lead, just as we heard. He leads us by his spirit. We lead our children. Uh, to not induce fear in our children, or indeed to exasperate our children. The passage elsewhere says, do not, fathers, do not exasperate your children, but to induce respect. To, to regularly choose to stay. So we, we may not adopt our children, but you adopt your children every time you decide not to leave. Funny thought that, isn't it? You, can, you, you, you may not choose to be a genetic father, but you do choose to be a real father. To regularly choose to stay, because it's so easy to leave. There was some recent survey that said 70% of married men under 40, in, I think this was in the UK, expected that they'd have an affair at some point. Don't make that you. Don't make that you. A child may be unplanned, but they should never be unwanted or rejected. So we choose to stay. We are intimate with our children, just as God is intimate uh, with us. And we care for our children. And, and sometimes, as, as men, our tendency is to want to fix stuff, isn't it? You know, the, the kid will come in pain and be like, well, how did it happen? How can we make sure it doesn't happen again? Do I need to discipline one of your brothers and sisters? Is there a broken nail somewhere I've got to fix? And actually, perhaps what the kid just needs is a hug at this point. And then maybe try and fix it. And of course, we provide for them, just as we said. He's, you know, we're heirs with, with God. Well, actually, you know, we provide for our children, don't we? The bank of dad, of course. Um, and that carries on. And we need to be there for them and with them in difficult times and in good times. We need to be loyal and we need to prepare for their future. We must never leave them or forsake them, just as God will never leave or forsake us. Fathers, your children need you. Actually, they need you more than they need the stuff that you're going to buy them or the promotion you're going to get. They need you. What a wonderful thing it is for us to be children of God, but also to have the privilege of parenting others. And you say, well, I haven't got children. Actually, you can be like a father in the church, like a mother in the church, and you can find new Christians, perhaps, or people not yet Christians, and you can be like that to them. You can be God to them, if you like. You can be a spiritual parent, and you can certainly babysit. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you that you came that we might have a relationship with God restored, that our sins might be forgiven, that you died for us and you rose again for us and you're coming back for us. And in the meantime, you take great care of us. We praise you for that. Amen.